Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. Uh, sorry about a little bit of a delay. We had a bit of a technical difficulty. Um, we're so glad that you could join us. And this, um, this week, we're going to talk about genetics, um, how your genes relate to your brain health, what you can really see, and how and if and why you would want to know if you have a genetic um, predisposition to Alzheimer's disease. Joining me, I'm so happy, is Jamie Tyrone. Jamie um, is going to tell us her story about how she unexpectedly figured out um, that she was at an elevated risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, Dr. Marwan Saba was supposed to join us, unfortunately cannot at this time, um, but he is going to come back to us a little bit later and have a discussion on the medical side of, of genetics. Um, and Jamie is going to give us her perspective because she spent a lot of time and it's now become a life cause for her. So Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I really, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. So Jamie, let's just start first and foremost with your story and tell us how did you find out that you were at risk um, for Alzheimer's disease? Sure. So nine years ago, I volunteered to um, be a participant in a study. And the premise of the study was, if you knew you were at genetic risk for certain diseases, would you change your lifestyle? Um, gosh, Alzheimer's wasn't even on my radar screen, even though I had it in my family, my grand, my great grandmother, grandmother, um, two great uncles, and then my father. So I had it on both sides of the family. Um, so I was really looking for, I was having some neurological issues. So I was looking for my risk for MS. Um, and so I was one night I'm on my computer and, and my inbox was the results of the testing. And it came back that I had two copies of the APOE4 Lil, which puts me at a huge risk for Alzheimer's disease. And I know there's some question as to what exactly the risk is, and I think it depends on who's testing or what company's testing. Um, but it was done without any genetic counseling at all. And I was really thrown off guard I figured if I had gone through genetic counseling, that the genetic counselor would have been able to kind of weed through, filter through why I wanted to do this testing. Um, they could have looked at my, um, are you there? Yeah, we're here. Keep going. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, okay. And so if they looked at my family history, they would have seen, oh my goodness, you know, she's at high risk. Oh, and, and, and look at, um, let's look at what her motivations are for knowing this information. And so had a genetic counselor, had I interacted with one, I think I would have been much more prepared for this information. And it was just very, very shocking to me. And I ended up um, really kind of going through a very deep, dark phase of my life because at that point in time, there wasn't any support groups. Um, and there's still the information out there. We're getting a lot more information, but at the time it was just very, very minimal. Um, so, so that, oh, yeah, so I, I want to back up a little bit because, um, I think, you know, a lot of people debate and, and it's true. We know a lot more about how our genes relate to our health and in, in particular, um, with Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, just as a bit of background, um, what, what Jamie is talking about is the APOE4, um, gene, which you can either have one variant or two or none at all. So the, the background on this is, APOE3 is deemed kind of the neutral one, um, the one that doesn't elevate your risk at all. APOE2, um, researchers think may offer a bit of protection against Alzheimer's, and APOE4 is one that gives you um, more risk. Now, if you have two copies of APOE4, it means each parent had one copy um, that they ended up giving you. So that um, is why people who have two copies, which is known as homozygous, um, are at an ele more of an elevated risk. Now, if you have one copy, um, it said um, that you have a little bit more of a risk, um, but it's not like having two copies. I mean, um, APOE4, um, 
for for um, homozygous, meaning you have two copies, means that you know if you live a full lifespan, then I mean there's a, there's some argument around what percentage of risk you're going to have, but um, a lot of people say it's over ninety percent chance that you will get Alzheimer's if you live um, a full lifespan. Is is that correct, Jamie? Is that the presumption that, that people Absolutely. are Absolutely. And I, my understanding, and very well, you've, you explained it very well. Um, my understanding is, is that it's a 90% lifetime risk. So in the lifespan, say 85 years old, I think that's the age that they equate into this lifespan, that when I turn 85 years old, I have a 90% chance of getting Alzheimer's disease. I may never get it, but considering my family history and the genetics, we don't really even know by changing lifestyle. It's very, very healthy, but we don't know based on our my genetic status, how much does it decrease your risk? Does it push it back by five years? Because the, the gene APOE4 really is about um, time of onset. So if you have one copy of a four, your onset is gonna be later on than someone that may have two copies. So the average age of onset for homozygous is about 63 to 65. So as we're talking, I am 57 um, and Technically speaking, or from what the studies show, I'm already building up plaque in my brain. Um, so the question is, is uh, what about the lifestyle changes? And there's some great studies that are coming out, great information coming out. So I still, in my mind, have the question, well, if I give up my glass of wine at night, how much is it going to decrease my risk? So that's kind of where I'm at right now mm -hmm. with knowing this information. Yeah, and we should say um, research now has told us that plaque can appear in our brains um, as much as 20 years before we ever see the first symptom of Alzheimer's. I mean, I, I found out my status. I'm APOE3. I'm a homozygous APOE3, which means I don't have an elevated risk. But that doesn't mean that I necessarily don't have plaque in my brain, right? Um, so there's still a lot of unknowns around um risk risk factors for that matter um so what and, let's go back can i, can I interrupt sorry. you a few seconds yeah. i'm sorry um sorry. and just because i am a 4-4 doesn't mean i'm gonna get it i mean there is a chance that i could i mean there are what they call the welderly that are very active in their 80s that are 4-4 that have absolutely no um symptoms at all of having any cognitive impairment so um it doesn't mean it's a death sentence at all it just means okay if i'm given this information what am i going to do with it and do I want to know this information? Do I want to be tested? And what are the, um, you know, what could po the possible ramifications be? So let me let me ask the question a different way. Now that okay. you know your um, E4 homozygous, would you want to know all? If you were given a choice to to roll back time, would you want to know today? No. And why is that? Because um, I have had to live with the anxiety of knowing. So every time I have a brain hiccup, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm getting Alzheimer's disease. So um, it becomes challenging because this is normal aging for memory. But because I know it, I always have that in the back of my mind. Now there has been positive things that have come from it. I don't know if you want me to share that. Yeah, please do. Okay, so the positive thing that has come of this is that, um, and I think this is actually a great argument for knowing your status, and probably the only argument, um, in my opinion, is to participate in research. Because if you know, whoops, sorry, if you know you're at increased risk, now there's something that you can do. And for me, I think it's a strategic plan. I'm a lab rat, a, a research participant. And <laughs> I know. I got chastised. I got chastised the other day, by the way, when I was at Banner Alzheimer's Institute, I referred to myself as a lab rat. And Dr. Caselli goes, you're not a lab rat. You are a, um, oh, what did he say? You're partner. a person. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I'm a partner. That in, um, I'm a research partner. And someone actually said, let's meet in the middle. Maybe you are a citizen scientist. And I'm like, that will work for me. I'll be a citizen scientist. But nonetheless, um, I now am the quickest 
it is altruistic, absolutely. And I'm hoping that um, we will help the next generation get Alzheimer's disease, and maybe even my, our generation. Um, but I have my finger on the pulse. I'm closest to the source. And as um, I've heard before, George Radenberg says that um, the first person cured of Alzheimer's disease is going to be a research participant. So to me, that is the plus side of knowing. Also, if you're concerned, some people say, well, I want to get tested because if I don't have a four, then I'm going to be relieved. Um, but there are things to take into consideration. First of all, because of the um, GINA Act, we are protected from employment and health insurance. But the big question is, what about long-term care insurance and life insurance? So one of the things that I say in my book is that... Um, Oh, would you like to know the title? How terrible I remembered it. It's the um, fearing for your life, thriving in the shadow of Alzheimer's disease. And so, we should add that Jamie's actually writing a book with Dr. Marwan Saba, who heads um, the Alzheimer's unit at Cleveland Clinic, who was supposed to join us, is going to join us on another date to really give us um, a physician's perspective on genetics. Um, but so they are co-writing this book to give us two perspectives, one from a medical professional and, and from Jamie herself, who's obviously gone through um, finding out what her status is. Well, and it's unique because here is exactly the person that has found out their status, who's chosen to participate in research, and then get, like you said, the medical piece of it, the understanding of what it is that I'm saying, which is in lay terms, and that it, it, it's nice to have the scientific behind it to, um, to actually also talk about it. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I do discuss in my chapters is that... Um, that you need to take these things into consideration. And then once um, it's in your medical record, and that's the first thing I did. It's like when I did my Google search to find out my risk, um, I started looking at, you know, what does this mean? And part of the conversation we're having is if it, if you go to 23andMe, which is very important because a lot of people are learning through that, but they're the direct consumer, is that the first thing I did is I went to my primary care and it got into my medical record. So if I go to apply for life insurance or long-term care insurance, it's now discoverable. So the question is, is if you want to know your status, if you've had your heart to heart, I would recommend speaking with a genetic counselor, getting your affairs in order. And then if you do come back as a 4-4, then you will already have those things set in place. So now, basically, in basically you're saying get your long-term care insurance before you do this test. Because life insurance, if you need these these two products, absolutely. That's a really good point, and that's a lot. Uh, that's what a lot of people don't think about, right? I mean, I'm not thinking about no. my. I mean, I know I probably should because I'm learning so much about Alzheimer's, but and I have a mom with Alzheimer's disease, but um, you know, it, it, that's a that's a really great point. It's like, okay, what do we want out there about our genetic profile? Because in the end, could it be possibly used against us with insurance um, and and everything else? I mean, I was always told that well, at this time, insurance doesn't. Uh, get that information, but you're saying that's not necessarily true if there's a medical record. Well, so when it comes to medical insurance, even if you have the gene, in, even if it's in your medical record, you cannot be discriminated against. That's by law. So when it comes to employment and medical insurance, you will not be discriminated against. It's life insurance and long-term care insurance. So those are the two things that you need to um, consider. And also, you know, there is a fear that this information can be um, passed on or discoverable other ways too, just recently, um, so, that we found that that's the case, possibly. Yeah. So these are all the things to consider. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. Okay, wait, I wanna turn, we're, we're getting a, a, a growing audience and a lot of um, quite great questions that are oh. coming in. Um, one of them is, thanks for sharing. Um, hi, Jamie, thanks for sharing your story with us. Have you looked into getting a PET scan? Okay, now just to give everyone a background, a PET scan is a specific type of scan where they can actually see the plaque on your brain. But the reason why 
most people don't get a PET scan is it's not covered by your insurance because Alzheimer's is a disease which is labeled one without a cure and therefore um, insurance is not going to pay for a PET scan. A PET scan can cost a lot of money around like five, seven thousand dollars is what I've heard. Um, so most people don't go to their doctors and say, hey, I want a PET scan because um, you're going to have to pay out of your pocket. But now Jamie, interestingly enough, is 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 participating in trials. So Jamie, tell us, have you gotten a PET scan um, to look for plaque in your brain? Um, and if you have, what do you know? Okay, so I have many, I've had many PET scans um, because it's part of the research study that I'm involved in. Now, I have, they do not give me the results of those PET scans. It's as part of the study, we don't get that information. So the question I think would be, would I want to get a PET, PET scan or would I want to know? Um, here is the thing about scans. You can have amyloid buildup, but that again, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. So again, it's a personal choice. You know, having a PET scan and being negative might give some relief. Having the PET scan and having plaque can be anxiety provoking and you may not get it. So, you know, the question in anxiety also is not good for the brain. So I think you really have to think about what it is that you want to know and why and is it going to be helpful to you? Okay. And this Does is a great, sense? yeah, completely. And this is a great follow-up question that was just asked um, that um, my, my neurologist told me that because my mother is um, the only one ever in the family that has Alzheimer's, that it wouldn't be worth me having the DNA test for, for the mutant gene. He said that I don't have anything to worry about. What's your views on that? Um, again, uh, personally, again, it's a personal question. I would seek the advice of a genetic counselor. Um, and if you go to their website, the National Society of Genetic Counselors, there is a link that will help you find somebody. And I think it's really important because I can sit here and say, okay, this is what I put into it. This is what to consider. But someone's situation may be a little different than my situation. So I'm a Absolutely. huge advocate for genetic counseling, huge. And that was great because you just told us, someone asked, um, how, how do you find a genetic counsel counselor? What is, <laughs> what is the question name of the site again? Why don't I put that up? What is the name of the site? Um, it's the National Society of Genetic Counselors. National Society of Genetic Counselors. Okay. Go and ahead. if you go to their website, and, and, actually, and I think they probably have, there's going to be a shortage of genetic counselors because of the advent of 23andMe and other companies that the FDA has allowed to start testing for these risk genes. Um, so it's predicted that there will be a shortage at some point in time, if not already. But it's very important because, you know, maybe one of the ways to get to access to a genetic counselor would be maybe to see your physician and have him order it because um, insurance may pay for it. Right. I know my insurance paid, my husband had cancer and his family had prostate cancer. And so the insurance paid for because there was a genetic reason to see a genetic counselor. So I would recommend maybe going back to the physician and saying, documenting that there's Alzheimer's in the family and she may want to know her risk, if indeed she does, and then order for a genetic counselor to have her meet and help her to, or him decide whether or not they want this test done. And it's, right. I think genetic counseling is, is the missing link to all of this. Yeah, I actually, um, I always tell my kids, well, okay, guys, if you if you want to be guaranteed a job out of school, become a genetic counselor. It's true. And I mean, if I weren't so old, I would consider <laughs> being a genetic counselor. It's true. Very, very true. So I'm such a huge advocate for genetic counseling because, again, that would have prevented what I had gone through. I mean, you know, I got to a point in time where I had I did not know if I really wanted to be here because I was worried about my husband having to care to give care. And I, we don't have any children together. And now my husband, he's a funny guy, he has a sense of humor. So please take this as, as um, humorous and his way of trying to deal with it. Um, I just kept beating myself over the head. And now mind you, my husband's 13 years older than myself. And um, he said, well, what are you worried about? And I'm like, I'm so afraid you're gonna have to take care of me. And he said, I'll be dead by then. You don't have to worry <laughs> about me. And I'm like, you know, I guess that's a way of looking at it. Um, yeah. But it, it let it lent it some levity to the situation right. of um, what we were going through. And so 
I finally decided I had to choose between taking the dark road or taking the bright road. And I couldn't see my life being dark anymore. And that's why then I started embracing and saying, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure nobody has to have the same experience as me. And what can I do to help people make the decision as to whether or not they want to test? And again, it's a personal decision, but boy, I think a genetic counselor would really, it would prevented me from going through this. And I would have probably chosen not to be tested. Who knows? Okay. And we were, we were getting a lot of questions just on the basics. Like, how do you find out that you are, uh, you have a risk now? Um, I did 23, actually I did, I've done about five different, um, genetic, uh, tests because I wanted to see how people were presenting the information. Um, 23 and me is one that you, that's how you found out, right? Jamie, was it 23 and me? Well, actually the testing company was Navigenics and they're no longer in business. Okay. They were sold. But it was the same process, basically. It's the same process. You know, so, you, so you, yeah. So, but, but one of the problems is, I think that people are encountering is um, people like Jamie who didn't necessarily know they had an elevated risk find out through their results in companies like 23andMe without warning. And so I, I think they've gotten a little bit, like when I tested for 20 using 23andMe and other companies, nobody told me, you know, this information may cause you distress. I think they've gotten a little bit better about that. Um, but, you know, I and 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 I found out that I did not have that elevated risk because I was E3 homozygous. And someone just asked the question, well, what did Deborah mean when she said E3? I explained this at the beginning, but so that for those of you who just tuned in, I'll, I'll say it again. So E3 is deemed kind of the neutral um, um, genetic profile where you don't have an elevated risk. If you're E2, either have one copy or two copies, it's thought to give you a bit of protection against Alzheimer's. And E4 is, of course, the at risk. Um, so that is um, what we can tell about our elevated risk. Now, we haven't talked about, and I was hoping Marwin could weigh in about this, um, when we get him back, uh, we're gonna talk to him about this, but um, there's also other genetic variants that have been identified associated with early onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, those are called APP, Presen 1 and Presen, Pren 1 and Pren 2, I think. Is that right, Jamie? Pren Priscilla or Presen 2? Presen 1 Priscilla and yeah. I always forget what the uh, abbreviation you know, is. Yes. Now, now those um, genetic markers are indicators of early onset. Early onset is technically defined by um, getting Alzheimer's before the age of 65. So... Um, that is a whole kind of different, whole different ball game there. If you have early onset versus APOE4, APOE4 meaning you have an elevated risk, but you may not necessarily get Alzheimer's disease. Is that right? Yes. And those who have those gene mutations will get Alzheimer's disease. So it's really a totally different discussion because, you know, those the earlier onset or younger onset, they know pretty much that they have um, a 50 percent chance of getting the gene from one of their from a parent that had it in their family. So, right. yes. Yeah, so this is a different discussion. I'd kind of uh, like to go. Oh, go ahead. Can I just insert, because we have a really good point um, mentioned by one of our viewers who said an important addition to this discussion is that APOE4 genotype is not associated with Alzheimer's disease in all populations. One study in Tunisia and another in Nigeria, I've read the one in Nigeria actually, believed to be involved with this um, disconnect the fact that the cultures where there is no connect do not have vascular disease. They also tend to eat more healthy, um, fiber-rich diets um, and have a more active lifestyle. So, I mean, that those two areas that um, this viewer mentioned just really shows you there's a lot we don't know. Is that correct? Correct. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of this data about risk is, um, is based on, um, oh, what's the word I'm searching for? Um, Pop different populations. And so it's epidemiological in nature. So, you know, we're, what we need to do is now study why is it? I mean, we kind of draw the line, we kind of draw a line by saying, okay, this population here has a low incidence of Alzheimer's, and these are some of the things that they're doing. 
but is there a different um, mitigating gene that they have that may be preventing them or a low risk? So now we have to try and connect the dots from lifestyle changes to decreasing your risk. And what the promising thing is, is there are studies now that are being designed and actually started to start looking at exercise. And, and I can't remember the name of the study, but I think you could go on to the Alzheimer, uh, the Alzheimer's Association and find out this, the name of the study. And I should have prepared to um, talk about it. But so now they're going to be looking at how do we connect the dots and right. start looking at biomarkers, you know, plaques in the brain. Um, again, maybe some uh, cognitive testing to see whether it helps with cognition. Um, so there are things that we're still not there yet, but it's still hopeful. It's still saying, you know, we have information out there that we could possibly help and it shows i mean cardiovascular health decreased inflammation these are all things that are part of the um picture of alzheimer's disease so i have no doubt that we won't get there and mm -hmm. the studies are being designed and actually there is a study at banner alzheimer's institute that if you know that you're homozygous a 4-4 that it's called the generation study and um, they are actually studying four fours, which is the highest risk, which gives them a robust cohort. And they're going to be looking at um, clinical trials as to whether or not we treat Alzheimer's clinically, pharmaceutically before, you know, earlier, earlier on when you're asymptomatic, um, then, you know, that's promising research also. So um, uh, uh, questions are coming in about research and um, uh -huh. how how do you know? I'm like, so tell us a little bit about how you participate and that, like, what is it like to go through research? Um, we get a lot of questions. I, I think people are kind of like, well, you know, I, if, especially if you have a loved one who has this disease, you want to kind yes. of do something. Um, one of the problems I think is, is that research um, doesn't necessarily have opportunities for people who are below the age of 50 is uh, most studies. Um, and so I don't take you if you're you're below the age of 50. Um, I might not be correct on that. Um, there may no, be some, but in general, well, that question a lot. Very, very limited from what I found out. Now, uh, again, back to Banner, and I know, I know a little bit about it because I'm also in part of that study and you have to be 49 to get into that study. And it's a large a longitudinal biomarker study, which means they're looking at the brain plaques. They're looking at your APO, you know, genetic status and the cognition and they're studying over a longer period of time. And these are the studies that have shown that we build a plaque earlier on. Um, so they're also is a study or it's called, it's a gene match. I don't know. Um, gene match is again through Banner Alzheimer's in which you send in your um, saliva and they will then with your genetic, depending on what your genes are, they will then match you uh, nationally to studies that you will qualify for right. um, regarding, you know, research participation is so huge. It's a hot topic right now because. 80% uh, of research uh, studies fail to meet their enrollment goals. And that's tremendous. And there's a lot of money spent in research. So really being a research participant, a lab rat, a citizen scientist is so important. And again, one of the things that the book addresses is demystifying it. You know, people think research, there's stigma, there's, you know, what does it mean at this sterile environment? Um, and it's not that way at all. I mean, when I go to Banner, I feel like the lock, uh, rock star of lab rats. Um, they're so appreciative that all of their research participants are there. And it really, I mean, they're family to me. So, um, so you know, what, if what anyone, think, um, Jamie, I think that would be really helpful to this community is, because we know that plaques appear in the brain, um, you know, decades before you ever see a symptom of Alzheimer's disease, a lot of the focus around research is really shifting to prevention. Um, what can we find out by behavior, lifestyle? Um, what, what, how do those, how do lifestyle factors actually increase our risk? Um, comorbidities like diabetes, we know elevates your risk. They always say what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Um, so tell us personally how you've changed your lifestyle or really if you've changed your lifestyle to address your elevated risk. 
Great question. Um, when I first found out I was so depressed, I couldn't do anything. When I came out of the depression and decided to take, uh, take the bright road. I actually was in a very extensive exercise type program in nutritional. I was, um, actually doing the paleo diet and I was doing a lot of meditation and yoga. I felt the healthiest I ever had been in my life when I was, when I was doing that. But also I was so focused and almost so obsessed with it that I think i found a happy medium of, you know, uh, moderate exercise, uh, you know, everything in moderation. And that's helped me emotionally too, because I'm not so fixated on, oh my God, I have this high risk. So you've, you put it right on point that whatever's good for the heart is good for the brain, uh, the brain. And you've talked about the comorbidities. And if we could address those comorbidities, we will hopefully increase our cognitive reserve and, and push out Alzheimer's by say five years. And statistically speaking, if we can push out the average, the age of onset by five Five years, we can decrease Alzheimer's disease by 50%. So there's definitely a great argument. Um, you know, but the question is, is, can you do this without knowing your genetic status, kind of looping, circling back to do you test or not to test? So, um, you know, interestingly enough, the study that I participated in, they said uh, the conclusion was is that people did not change their lifestyle and they handled the information well. And I'm like, wait a second, it's kind of reverse. So um, anyway, <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I guess the moral of that is that, you know, you don't know how you're going to react. Right. I mean, no, I, I can I, you know, interrupt here? yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because I get a lot of phone calls from people who have found out their genetic status through direct consumer testing. And one of the things that they'll say, um, oh, what they will say to me is, I didn't know I needed genetic counseling. So even when they go through the informed consent process through the direct consumer testing, they may say, you know, we advise speaking to a genetic counselor. They're like, ah, no, no, I, no big deal. I can handle this information. You scroll down, you greeted the terms. Um, but you have to be very careful because people don't necessarily know how they're going to take this information. Some may right. take it fine without the genetic counseling, but I want to, I want to part with um, erring on the side of uh, safety. Yeah. And so I'm, sorry. I mean, I guess, I guess for me, um, you know, I'm still really um, obsessive about my brain health since my mom, I learned so much about Alzheimer's disease and I have a mother with Alzheimer's disease. Um, but for me, I wanted to know um, if my kids would be at elevated risk. I still have to get my husband tested. So I really only have 50%. Um, but, you know, that could be another reason why you would or would not or would not want to find out. Right. Because, you know, if you if you have a partner, a husband who is homozygous, heterozygous, one copy, two copies, you're going to you're going to understand what risk your kids may hypothetically have. Right. And so I think all of those factors um, and knowing about that risk should be considered before you, you run out and get a test. Well, correct. And, and again, um, you have Alzheimer's on your mom's side. Um, so you, and the thing is she has Alzheimer's. Has she been tested? Does she, do you know if no, she has any? she hasn't been tested. Um, but, you know, but we still Did don't you know, know what? do we? Oh. I mean, because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of researchers looking into environmental lifestyle factors that could mm -hmm. elevate our risks for this disease. Sure. So I guess that the, what we, you know, we just learning about our genetics is not going to tell us everything, right? There's a lot of different factors and a lot of different things we still don't understand about the cause of Alzheimer's disease um, and um, looking at different aspects um, to elevate that risk. So it is, I mean, genes are just one thing, perhaps, you know, um, that, that we can look towards. Um, but, you know, for me, who has the neutral, um, I still am obsessive about my brain health. So even if I, I I'm kind of living like I was E4, you know, um, 
So well, and you know, you know, being a three three. Okay, so how the APOE works? You receive one set of APOE, two, three, or four from each each parent. So the fact that you are three three, it means you will definitely pass on a three to your children. Yeah. So worst case scenario from a genetic perspective, risk perspective is that they inherited maybe a four from your husband. Right. So, so they could only have one copy of correct. four. Right. Yeah. So we well, know they may not even, but for sure they, you know, that they're going to get one three. Right. And that's from you because if you were a three, like my mom's a three, four, but I, so I got, I luck of the draw. I got a four from her. I could have gotten a three, but I got right. a four. And my dad, I don't know what his status was. Obviously, he had one four and he passed with Alzheimer's disease. So, so and this is timely because someone just said, because I have two copies of E4, will each of my children have at least one copy? And yes, the answer is yes, right? Each of them will have one copy. Um, so, you know, and again, um, I, you know, there's still a lot we don't know. Um, and that's why people who do have elevated risks are in high demand to participate in research because there are um, at least a profile, a risk profile that can be built from your genetics. Um, yeah. Now, another another question was asked is like, you talked about the really great side of, of participating in the research, but people are also wondering, is there a negative side? Well, again, I think that depends on the person. For instance, if you're claustrophobic, you may not want to go into an MR, MRI scan or a, or a PET scan. Although, um, like at Banner, they will give you Valium. So that may decrease that risk. But again, if you're claustrophobic, that's probably something you might not want to consider. Um, you still can consider cognitive testing where, you know, you answer all these questions for several hours in memory, short-term memory. They test all different types of memory. Um, they're usually involved if it's a, and again, it depends on the, the trial that maybe they'll have to insert an IV. Um, so those may be things that may be um, adverse to what you desire. One of the things most research um, requires a study partner. So for instance, like my husband, even though he may not travel with me to Phoenix, they will call him to let to see if he has recognized any changes in, in my ability to, in my memory. Um, so again, it depends on the study and how often that you have the time, the dedication of the time. And again, it just, and one of the things, Deborah, that, and I think we're going to get better at this as time goes on, is that, you know, we have all these registries that you can register for to throw your name and to put your name into the hat. Um, but I think we need to be a little bit more cohesive as to how do we match, match people up with a research study. Um, right. So, but what, one of the things um, I want to talk about too is the baseline, because obviously they're measuring, um, when you go into study, they're measuring your, your they're giving you a cognitive assessment. So t talk us through that. When it, someone wanted to know about, like, when, when they test your cognition, when they're mm -hmm. tracking through the years, what does that mean? What type of tests are they giving you and what kind of questions are they asking you? So one of the tests is they're, they're testing on short-term memory. So what they'll do is they'll give you three words that you have to remember, and then they'll start talking to you. And maybe 10 minutes later, they'll say, oh, do you remember those three words that I, that I gave to you? And so that's one of the short-term memory testing. Another testing that I've gone through as part of the, um, my half day there is that um, they'll tell me a story about whatever, and it will be a lengthy story, and so then you'll come back to it, talk some more, and then you have to come back and you have to repeat the story. So they're looking at key words about the story, like maybe the woman, the age, you know, a dog or a kid, depending on the story that they're telling. Um, so that's another um, testing. Uh, the easy one is the clock. Can you draw a clock? Um, another one is I'll look at an image, a complicated image, and then they'll ask me to, to draw it. So those are some of the things. It's, it's sometimes it can be a little... Um, tiring just because again you go through this mental gyrations of oh did i pass or whatever um but it's really a good thing for baseline i mean you'll right. know I, mean, I know there's some difference um actually some strengths and weaknesses when i go every time so um 
So, so um, another question has come in um, to point. Well, it's actually not a question; it's a comment, which which says another negative um, uh, potential negative is if you're actually involved in a study that is maybe um, dealing with treatment, you may be in a placebo group, right? And you're not going to know. Part I think part of the reason why people sometimes feel frustration with um, study participation is they're not getting a lot of information back, right? So how much information have they given you in terms of what your brain health is and and all of that? Um, do you walk away with more information about your brain? No. But again, that's how this study is designed. And I know that going into it, that I'm not going to know the results of the PET scans or the MRIs because right. they're seeing it blindly too. So um, the one thing is if they found something on a scan that was outside the scope of the study, for instance, if there were some sort of, you know, brain tumor or whatever, they would then let you know that we found this um, abnormality and it needs to be followed up with. But there are studies that will let you know. Um, the A4 study, you'll, you'll, they'll disclose to you whether or not you have plaque in your brain because they want cognitively normal people that have a buildup of plaque and they want to, you know, study um, who's treatable and who's not and why and so on and so but you have to know they will tell you on that study whether or not you have plaque um and right. now there's there's huge conversations going on right now about um people are wanting to know this information so how do we design a study to inform people of this so right. um i know so banner did their study and they've included genetic counseling into it. So if, if you um, desire to know your, you will, you will have genetic counseling all along the way. So by the time it gets disclosed to you, you'll be prepared for it. So right. um, it, it's evolving. Research is evolving. Yeah. And, and, you know, in a way we know a lot more now than we did when you first got tested, right? You were a little bit at a disadvantage because you were kind of thrown into this world and no one was, not a lot of people were talking about it yet. At least, you know, as more genetic tests appear, um, this is becoming an issue and people need, um, definitely need more information before oh, they understand. Without a doubt, without a doubt, because when I found out, um, it, it was really, um, I was actually counseled from a researcher that it'd probably be best for me not to talk about it because I might be discriminated against. And that was kind of very silencing on how do you deal with this information? Yeah. And now we're talking about it and it's so yeah. important to talk about it. And we actually, um, my 501c3, we're actually collaborating with UCSD and we're actually creating a support group for four fours that are kind of like shocking. Like, what do I do now when I get this information? And so, right, right. which is in San Diego, which, which I'm sure there needs a lot more of, right? I mean, there's, there's, um, it's, it's, yeah. Okay. So we have another question comment coming in saying my mother has MCI, a mild cognitive impairment. Her brother had Alzheimer's. My grandmother had senility. My father's side had none of the above. Does that mean I will get a three and not a four? Um, I think it's, it's kind of hard, right? Uh, to, because, um, just because I'm homozygous three doesn't mean I'm not going to end up with Alzheimer's. Right. So it, it's, what do you have to say to that, Jamie? Well, it's very confusing because we really don't know. We really don't. And so this is one of the arguments when uh, the direct consumer markets uh, said to the FDA is that, you know, we think we can give this information. The FDA was saying, well, people aren't going to handle this information well. And we don't know. It's not diagnostic. And so people are looking at these tests as diagnostic. But it really isn't because you don't know the future. I may never get it. Um, yeah. You may. We don't know. Yeah. Um, and just because a family member has dementia, they may be a 4-4. So, you know, you, you just don't know. The only way you know is if you get tested. And yeah, that's a I mean, and, and, and my thought is like, you know, we should all care about our brain, right? We should all care about the health of our brain and um, taking care of our brain. And so whether you're at more of a res risk or less of a risk, it, it actually doesn't matter. You know, I have a son who's an athlete, so I, I care about his brain. Um, in fact, when I'm on the the sidelines at soccer, I'm screaming, don't head the ball, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, and this is one of the things I point out, you do not have to know your genetic status to live a Absolutely. healthy life. And, you no. know, so then the study that I participated in, it was 
the results were it didn't motivate people to change their lifestyle. Um, some people it does, some people it doesn't. It motivated me for a while. Now I'm, like I said, I've kind of come to, you know, meeting it halfway. Um, but again, you do not have to know your genetic status to do but that. Let's, let's, let's actually give people a little snapshot of what they should consider. Okay. So um, if you have a relative maybe who has Alzheimer's disease, a parent with Alzheimer's disease, and, and a lot of questions always come in, should I get that genetic test? Give us the first like three to five questions that people need to ask themselves before they decide if they want to have the genetic test. Why am I wanting to be tested? What would I do that in, with that information? And if I do want that information, Am I motivated to get my financial house in order? And am I going to change my lifestyle? I mean, those are very important questions. Um, why and what would you do with it? I mean, would right. you change your lifestyle? What would you do with this information? Um, the, the, yeah, absolutely. So and the one thing I, I wanted to impart here is I feel like when I was 49 and I went through this testing, I was in healthy denial. I had it on both sides of the family, but guess what? It wasn't going to happen to me. I'm young. It wasn't even on my radar screen. And again, I was in healthy denial. I no longer have that healthy denial. I no longer can say it's not going to happen to me knowing that I'm a 4-4 because I'm like, okay, I'm at in increased risk. So, um, so wait, you know, just to let people know, you one of your parents had Alzheimer's or both of your parents? Uh, my father died with Alzheimer's disease. My mom currently does not have Alzheimer's disease, but she's, so, she's showing some cognitive issues. Um, but in my great grandmother and grandmother had Alzheimer's disease and my two great uncles. So, uh, but you know, again, on which, just, side were the, which side were the grandparents on your, your mother's or my father's side? side? My okay. mother's side, my father's side, they didn't live long enough to know they all had cardiovascular disease, Absolutely, which can yeah. be part of the genetic status. So my father just happened to live long enough. And mind you, he hit his whole life. He never took a medication. He was so healthy active and whatever. And, How know. old was he, Jamie, when he got Alzheimer's or at least diagnosed, right? Often we get a diagnosis a lot later and there are signs in, in, in hindsight, but when, when he got a diagnosis, how old was he? He was 76 and he passed at 82. So, okay. um, about six years that, but his wife will, my stepmother will tell you, I knew way back. I knew way back before then that he was, you know, he had signs of depression and he had problems sleeping, but it was never really correlated. And it wasn't until he started um, not remembering why he was in a building or being confused and uh, driving, having problems driving. So when it was finally like, yep, this is what's going on. So, right. So, okay. And we're, we're almost out of time here. So, but, but I want to, I want to leave on a, I mean, a, a, a happy good note because I mean, Jamie's doing some amazing things, um, raising awareness around this issue. Um, she, she speaks a lot and you heard her talk about uh, a support group at UC um, San Diego. She is writing a book with Dr. Marwan Saba, who is the new head of the Alzheimer's um, unit at Cleveland clinic um, and he's going to be joining us we wanted to get the two of you together but as uh, timing didn't work this time um, we're going to talk to him um, in a future brain talks about really the medical side of this like what what is what are doctors learning about um, you know your genetics in relation to your brain um, and I, I think the good news is we are learning more I mean there's still a lot we need to know but we are learning more right we are absolutely. And um, I feel there's hope. I mean, I really do. There's a study now that's um, Biogen and they're getting great results. They're showing that the amyloid is um, being broken down and, and out of the brain. Um, my understanding is they're still looking at the cognitive improvement because you kind of have to look at both, you know, is uh, less amyloid increase in your uh, cogn cognition. Um, but yes, there's so much coming down the pike. And I'm excited for you to interview Dr. Sabah because, um, and he does genetic testing, but he does it in, uh, in 
conjunction with diagnosing. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what his opinion is on it. I mean, I think we're pretty much in line, but who knows, maybe things have changed from him over the time. So well, what's, what's been, I have to say, what's been really interesting to me is some doctors who I had spoken to, um, we, we talked to Dr. Bill Burke from Banner um, a couple weeks back. And, you know, at first he was like, you know, a while ago, he was like, no, you should not learn your genetic status, right? But now he's kind of changed his mind. And he said, you know what, now I think I changed my mind on that one, because a lot of the research on lifestyle is being substantiated, right? And so if that makes you have a healthier life, then why not, right? If, if you know you're, you're at a, um, an elevated risk, but it changes your lifestyle for the better, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. And again, that's why I'm such a um, strong advocate for genetic counseling, because, you know, you do not know what this information is going to mean. Is it going to motivate you? Is it not going to motivate you? How could you possibly react? And so I've definitely changed my stance, too. At first, I was like, no, don't test for it. Uh, now I'm that's it may be it may be good for somebody to have this knowledge. And so, again, it's getting the right counseling to help you understand, because I don't want anyone to have to go through what I've gone through. And I've met people that have gone through the same thing when they weren't prepared for it. And they're like, now what? Um, so again, but yes, things are evolving. Absolutely. And so I have evolved too. And I'm not going to say don't do it. Right. I'm just going to hopefully help so you go through just your give us a quick, um, give your book a quick plug. When, when is it going to be on bookstore shelves? Well, it, our final manuscript is due in three weeks, so it's a big, big push. Um, it's interesting, the book life and the publishing life, the life cycle. So it will be out early next year. So okay. um, All right. Well, we will look forward to it. And thank you. Jamie, thank you so much um, for sharing your story, also giving us your perspective as someone who knows um, that you have an elevated risk through your genetics. I think it's really helpful um, to this community. Um, we may get some follow-up questions to everyone who watched. Thank you so much. Um, if you have more questions, just post them in the Facebook group. Jamie's actually a member of the Facebook group, so um, she could either answer directly or we'll ping her and um, or try to get the answers that you want. But um, just put on to put on your radar, as soon as we know um, when Dr. Sabah can join us from the Cleveland Clinic, um, we will be posting in the Facebook group. Um, we, can, we will discuss a lot of the technical issues from a physician's perspective. We're actually going to talk about what function APOE has in, in our bodies and in our brains um, to give us a little bit of a background on, you know, um, the science of it. So please join us then. Just um, stay in our Facebook group. Uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. It was so wonderful to talk to you and so appreciative of your, your viewpoint. Thank you so much. Okay, see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>